Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, There's No Other Way to Live. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 14, 2016, the first Sunday in Lent. This week presents an interesting quirk of the calendar for believers. In between the hype of Super Bowl Sunday on February 7 and the sentimentality of Valentine's Day on February 14th, we begin the season of Lent on Ash Wednesday. Since the 4th century, Christians have observed the 40 weekdays before Easter as a period of reflection, repentance, fasting, abstinence, and acts of mercy. And in particular, we're invited to remember that someday we will die. Lent isn't an end in itself. It's not some sort of world-denying moralism. Rather, it's the enactment of a spiritual paradox and our confession of a greater end, that to live life fully in the here and now, we embrace our mortality and that our hope in Easter resurrection passes through the certainty of our physical death. Lenten practices like abstaining from alcohol don't mean that Christians are a bunch of killjoys. Far from it. In fact, the very opposite is closer to the truth. During Lent, we shed the superficialities of our lives in order to drill down, and in the words of 1 Timothy 6.19, take hold of the life that is truly life indeed. We're seeking the abundant life that Jesus said he came to give everyone, a spiritual life that transcends material existence. To remember death has always been standard pastoral wisdom in the church. In his famous rule, St. Benedict advised his monks to see death before one daily. And in the 15th century, a whole genre of literature emerged on the art of dying. These manuals advised readers how to die well, and clergy on how to help them do that. In our broader culture, our best thinkers acknowledge that wrestling with death is a strategy for life. This week, I read a survey of end-of-life memoirs by Tom Rockman. It's called Meeting Death with Words, in the online version of New Yorker for January 25th. I reviewed a number of the books that he mentions, those by Sinan Antun, Julian Barnes, Joan Didion, Atul Gawande, Christopher Hitchens, and Andrew Meredith. And last month, I read Caitlin Doughty's memoir called Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematory. Doty argues that our culture denies death. Unlike a hundred years ago, when people died at home and every family dealt with death up close and personal, today we have medicalized death and outsourced it to the professionals. She wants to look mortality straight in the eye. In her view, death should be known, known as a difficult mental, physical, and emotional process respected and feared for what it is. 
and she says that knowing death carries an entirely positive purpose. She writes, When you know that death is coming for you, the thought inspires you to be ambitious, to apologize to old enemies, call your grandparents, work less, travel more, learn Russian, take up knitting, fall in love. Dodi is irreligious, but here she sounds downright Lenten. Similarly, in his book, Being Mortal, Atul Gwande observes how elderly people who are more mindful of mortality often shift their life priorities to being rather than doing, to giving rather than getting, to friendships rather than accomplishments, to family rather than work, and so on. This is why Lent is so beautiful and so powerful. Ash Wednesday is that most honest of days, says Sarah Miles, because it's a day when the church reminds us of what our culture denies, that our days are limited and that we've made a mess of things. The hard truth of Lent is thus a blessing because it exposes what Gwande calls the prevailing fantasy that we can be ageless. On Ash Wednesday, the priest smears ashes on my forehead to remind me of my mortality. To each and every parishioner, he recites God's words to Adam. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. This somber truth stands in stark contrast to the archetypal lie that Satan told Eve and the denial that flourishes down to our own day. Surely you will not die. And so the Lenten wisdom to remember death, memento mori. We remember death as a way to affirm life. Meditating on mortality helps me to live more fully in the present. Last Saturday, I read the brand new memoir by the Stanford neurosurgeon, Paul Kalanithi. It's called When Breath Becomes Air. I couldn't put it down and finished it in a day. Just when he had finished 12 years of medical training at the age of 36, Kalanithi was diagnosed with stage four metastatic lung cancer a terminal diagnosis that was extremely rare for someone his age. His memoir describes how he and his wife Lucy, an internist at Stanford, struggled to find meeting in this dramatic reversal brought about by his imminent death. From being a superstar neurosurgeon who had won prestigious national awards to become a patient in a hospital gown sitting in the very, very same exam rooms where he had treated his own patients. What makes Kalanithi's story so compelling is that he was always driven less by achievement than by trying to understand in earnest a simple question. What makes human life meaningful? Like Dottie, he offers a very Linton-like piece of wisdom. He writes... The fact of death is unsettling, yet there is no other way to live.
I love Lent. It reminds me that I don't need to be stuck in tired ways of thinking and acting. Renewal is possible. Change can happen. I can wipe the mud off my glasses, hit the reset button, consider what's really important for a good life. I don't need to wait for old age to magically impart a new perspective on what matters most and why. And because Ash Wednesday ends in Easter Sunday, believers are the ultimate optimists. This Ash Wednesday, I'm remembering my friend, the poet Brett Foster. I was so happy when Brett visited me in my home last May, but also shocked to learn then that he was staring death in the face due to stage four colon cancer. After I left, I could barely speak. He died six months later at the age of 42. So after I return home on Ash Wednesday and the cross on my forehead has turned to smudge, I'll still hope for what Brett called those hallowed moments to be followed by sustaining confidence. For books this week, Debbie Thomas has written a review of a book by Anthony Doerr, All the Light We Cannot See, New York Scribner, 2014, 531 pages. Anthony Doerr's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, All the Light We Cannot See, interweaves the stories of two children, a blind French girl and an orphan German boy whose paths collide in occupied France during World War II. Marie Loret, a bright, inquisitive, and resourceful girl, lives with her widowed father in Paris, where he works as a master locksmith at the Museum of Natural History. When Marie Loret goes blind at the age of six, her father builds her a perfect miniature of the city so that she can memorize and navigate her neighborhood by touch. She's 12 when the Nazis occupy Paris, forcing her father and her to flee to the walled city of St. Malo, carrying with them the museum's most valuable, most storied, and potentially most dangerous treasure a blue diamond called the Sea of Flames. There, haunted by demons both imagined and real, Marie Loret has to endure the pain and loss of war, choosing again and again between fortitude and despair. Meanwhile, in an impoverished coal mining town in Germany, Werner grows up in an orphanage, listening longingly to radio broadcasts and dreading his future in the mines. When he turns out to be an engineering prodigy, his future shifts, landing him in an elite but brutal academy for Hitler youth. There he is schooled simultaneously in the technology he loves and the fascist ideology he can't muster enough courage to resist. Eventually, he is sent out to track the resistance and forced to confront the horrible human cost of his work. It's at the tail end of this journey 
that his story collides with Marie Lorray's. Written mostly in the present tense, in short, gorgeously wrought chapters rich in detail and metaphor, Dorr's novel is at once lyrical and suspenseful. Marie Lorray's blindness is convincingly portrayed, as is the political, social, and cultural devastations of war. Dorr's pacing is so skillful that readers will be tempted to read fast toward the novel's satisfying climax, but that would be a mistake. Line by line and chapter by chapter, Dorr's rich, textured prose deserves to be savored. Like the elaborate puzzle boxes Marie Lorray's father handcrafts for her birthdays, all the light we cannot see best yields its treasures slowly, one tiny lock and key at a time. A guest book review by Debbie Thomas, the title of the book, All the Light We Cannot See, a Pulitzer Prize winner. For movies this week, we go to the country of Ukraine in a movie called Winter on Fire from 2015. When Viktor Yanukovych was popularly elected president of Ukraine back in 2010, he promised his people to join an EU trade agreement and to foster closer ties with the West. When he broke that promise in the fall of 2013, a few hundred university students protested in the main independent square of the capital city of Kiev. Those early protests morphed into 93 days of violent and bloody, bloody revolution in Maidan Square, and even a march of millions. As Yanukovych unleashed, unleashed the police the dreaded special Burkut forces, and even paid thugs. This Netflix documentary captures the revolution as it happened and interviews the participants. The broken promise symbolized broader disagreements between pro-Western and Russian-leading citizens. And in the end, Yanukovych fled to Russia on February 22nd 2014, new elections were called, and the Ukrainian parliament signed the trade agreement. But here, there's a grim footnote. In March of 2014, just one month later, Putin annexed the Crimea in southern Ukraine. And by the spring of 2015, just one year ago, 6,000 people have been killed in the conflicts. This movie has won numerous festival awards and was shortlisted as one of the 15 finalists for the best documentary for the 2016 Academy Awards. The movie is in Ukrainian with English subtitles. Once again, the title of the movie, Winter on Fire. As we begin the season of Lent, we're posting a series of prayer poems 
by Father Thomas Hopko. They're from his book, The Lenten Spring. This is Lenten Prayers for Week 1. The Lenten spring shines forth, the flower of repentance. Let us cleanse ourselves from all evil, crying out to the giver of light, Glory to you, O lover of man. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 14, 2016, the first Sunday in Lent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.